once again. Wonderful singing this morning. I love the truths of those Christmas songs. John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. And we will, with the Lord's help, finish up this final paragraph in John 12 and then start chapter 13. The title of this morning's message is, is The Enduring Love of Christ. The Enduring Love of Christ. That is particularly found in John 13 in verse number 1, but we see that theme even touched on in verses 44 through 50 of John 12. We've come here to the end of this discourse, this last public sermon of Jesus in His earthly ministry. We looked at, I know, a a hard truth, a a difficult truth for us to to grasp and, and to swallow, uh, the, the fact there that in verse 39, therefore they could not believe, and then the quotes from the Old Testament. We talked about the judicial hardening of, of God in response to man's repeated and continual rejection of the gospel. Difficult place to be. But we see that there were a group in verse 42 among the chief priests, or excuse me, the chief rulers, that believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we touched on the fact that our life should be a confession. Not just our words, but our life should be a continual confession of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our life should live out evidence that we are truly born again. These chief rulers did not truly come to saving faith because they were not willing to give up their position, their title, their status in society and in the synagogue among the Sanhedrin. But we go back up and we actually look in verse 36 at the end of the the verse. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. So Jesus left the the public circles. He left the Passover feast out among the the streets and in the uh, public areas. And he he went into a a place of hiding. Uh, We're not sure exactly where that is. Some say that he may have gone back to Bethany. But in verse 44, we read that Jesus cried and said, So where did this take place? Where did Jesus make uh, these statements? Where where did he say these things found in verses 44 through 50? Again, it's not that uh, we're we're trying to overanalyze the, the Scripture or read into the Scripture. But it appears by the inspiration of God that God led John to record these words of Jesus. These are the very words of Jesus. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible. They're probably in red. These are the very words of Jesus that were probably spoken in this week, in this Passion Week, but by the inspiration of God, God had John record them at the end of this chapter after the statement that Jesus did hide himself from them. And we're not exactly sure, but it seems that it, it, it is a summary of much of Jesus' teaching. 
It was probably in the discourse somewhere or somewhere in the week where Jesus was teaching uh, there publicly and in this final sermon and discourse uh, somewhere, uh, possibly in there, these words, this paragraph was spoken. We know that these words were spoken by Jesus himself, preserved in God's word, by the inspiration of God and the preservation of God's word, and they form a sort of summary before Jesus enters into the upper room with his disciples, with the apostles, and washes their feet and observes the Lord's table, which would be their final Passover with Jesus before he was crucified. And we see, first of all, in this paragraph, in today's message, we see the message of salvation. The message of salvation. There are five in a sense, statements, five summary statements that we'll use to summarize this paragraph. We see there in verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Jesus speaks to his deity once again. He has already stated, I and the Father are one. He has claimed deity He has verified that with his miracles, with his message. The very voice of God, as we talked about three times, declaring Christ to be his son, God's son. It is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is God. The deity of Christ is extremely evident. And again, this Christmas season, I've already seen a headline And it will probably pop up in the magazine racks, on YouTube, various documentaries that are out. And they will try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That the scriptures do not claim that Jesus is deity. It is very clear in scripture that Jesus is God. And that he claimed to be God. Even so much that the religious leaders we're picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy. So when you see a headline like that, when you see that pop up, just ignore it and ask God to bring those people to repentance and faith in Christ because Jesus is God and he claims it once again. And he says that it is necessary to believe in him in order to truly know the Father. Saving faith is not a generic belief in God. Saving faith is not just a generic belief in Jesus of man's making, of man's determination. Saving faith is not belief in Jesus as a good prophet. Merely came and set a good example. He came from a poor home in northern Israel, he came out of rags and went to riches, so to speak. He became a great teacher and the people followed him. And and, and that's all Jesus ever was. That's all Jesus ever claimed to be. That's not saving faith if that's all Jesus is to you. And many people, Jesus is just a good teacher. He's just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He was just a good man, set a good example. But Jesus said, if you do not know me, then you do not know God. You do not know the Father. 
Now think about that. There's a lot of people out there who are very spiritual, even at least quasi-religious. They have a generic belief in God. Oh yeah, I believe in God. And oh yeah, Jesus is my, my, my Savior. But they don't truly believe in the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible. They've made Jesus into some fictitious Jesus, a Jesus of their own thinking, of their own pattern, of their, their, their own making, because they want Jesus to look more like them. They want Jesus to be the, the buddy, the, the popular, charismatic teacher that they like on TV or on the Internet. Uh, they want Jesus to be non-confrontational. They want Jesus to be just this maybe hippie-looking, almost feminine-acting kind of guy that's really no threat to them. They don't want a Jesus who commands us to obey the command to repent that declares us as sinners in need of salvation. They don't want to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Jesus makes it very clear. He that believeth on me believeth, excuse me, he that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. It's not that different from what he will say in John 14 in verse number 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Genuine saving faith is in the true Jesus of the Bible. He is the only way to God. There's not various paths on a great mountain that God is at the peak of that mountain and we all just kind of get there our own way, taking our own trail, on our own little self-guided tour, with maybe a little help from different prophets and different religious books. No, there is one way and only one way. And that is through Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ of the Bible. The living word of God declared in the written word of God. The truth. So we see the necessity of belief in Christ to know the Father, but also in this message of salvation, we see once again that Christ is the light of the world. Verse 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. As he stated already in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. He is the light of salvation and we are to live in the light of Christ and his word, even as believers, as we live for him. We see thirdly also in this message of salvation, we see that the word of God judges the one who rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is the word of God that ultimately judges one who rejects Christ as their Savior. Down in verse 47, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Ultimately, ultimately, it is the word of God that judges the unbeliever. The standard is the truth of the word of God. That is the standard by which we all are judged by. Christ, of course, is the living word, the logos, the very expression of God himself. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The written word, of course, is God-breathed. 
And the rejection of Jesus as one Savior is an act of disobedience. Do we realize that? Do we realize that the rejection of Jesus Christ as one Savior is ultimately an act of disobedience? It is disobedience to the command to repent and believe. We often don't think of it as a command to repent, to believe, but it is. So to reject Christ is to disobey Christ. Our sin, of course, is a violation of the law of God. We have all violated the law of God. And James even says that if we have violated the law in just one even small point, we are guilty of all. In the sense that if you have a chain and you break, you break one link of that chain, we would all say the chain is broken. But I only broke one link. doesn't matter. You break one link, you are guilty of breaking the whole chain. You, we sin in one area, in one even little sin. You know how we like to categorize sins, and I understand sins have different consequences at different levels, but all sin is a violation of the law, is a transgression of the law. And we're all guilty before God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned both in omission and commission. And we're sinners by birth, by our nature, and also by choice. So our sin is a violation of the law of God. And without the blood of Christ applied through repentance and saving faith, we will be found eternally guilty. We see this in a courtroom. The judge points to the law and gives a ruling based upon the law. We understand, as we've seen in our United States Senate and House of Representatives, even this past week, a violation of the law of God. And every single one of those politicians who voted both in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, voted for a lie that there is such a thing as same-sex marriage. Every single one of those politicians will give an account before God for how they voted in violation of the law of God. The law of God is how we must measure our lives. But a judge looks at the law Lawyers come, and a jury in some cases. But ultimately, there is a reference to the law. And if the law has been violated, there is a consequence. The law is written down. It's probably in a book somewhere. And if you've ever had to look up laws, I remember during the COVID lockdowns as the principal of our little Christian school, I remember having to go into the laws, the statutes of the state of Indiana. I remember when we were dealing with another issue with the Department of Education one time. I had to go in and I had to look at the laws of the state of Indiana in the books regarding certain aspects of education. And I'll tell you right now, I'll keep saying it, I'll say it for the rest of my life, nobody has more rules than the government. I don't want to hear all these people complain, oh, Christianity has so many rules. 
government has rules. Why do we want more government? They just keep adding more and more rules, most of, whom, most of which are ridiculous, and many times in violation of the law of God. But Jesus is ultimately pointing to the standard of the word of God. And he is saying, he is saying ultimately, it is the law of God, the word of God that judges us. We actually go to Revelation 20 in verses 11 through 14. If we were to go there, we would see that at the great white throne judgment, there is a book that is open. And the unsaved are judged out of that book. A sobering reminder that the unsaved, even at their judgment day, having rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's a sobering reminder that the law of God will once again be opened and the unsaved will be found guilty before God. And that's where we would be if not for Jesus Christ who saved us. And if there's someone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, the law is open, the book is open. And we are in violation of God's law. We are sinners. And we need the Savior. And that's what Jesus is once again saying. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So we see the necessity of belief in Christ to know the Father. We see that Christ is the light of the world. We see that the Word of God judges the one who rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior. But also in this message of salvation, we see, number four, that Christ spoke what He was given by the Father. We see that in verse 49. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Christ only spoke what was given to him by God. And we have to understand, again, this is a statement, ultimately, of his deity. His words were the very words of God himself. Now, I have been called by God to declare the truth of the word of God. But I don't make up any new divine revelation. I certainly don't receive any new divine revelation. And if I ever were to claim to receive new divine revelation or to make up my own divine revelation, you kick me out of here. I already saw a thumb pointing in the direction of the door, so I know who's going to lead the charge. But there are people who have the audacity around this world that claim to hear from God and to speak new divine revelation, who claim to have revelatory gifts. Only Jesus Christ could claim that with full authority. I know he gave men the inspired word of God. He breathed, God breathed the words and used human instruments, 40 different authors, 66 books, 1,500 plus years, in that sense, those men were gifted with revelatory gifts, but that has ceased. God has spoken unto us by His Son, we read in Hebrews chapter number 1. So Jesus is saying the very words that He is speaking 
are the very words of God himself. He is claiming divine authority. He's not just receiving and delivering divine revelation as a messenger, as a preacher, as a prophet, but he is the source of divine revelation. Which means he has all authority. So when he claims it in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He claims it with the divine rights of the authority of God, having the authority of God because he is God. He has the divine right to that authority. To say all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is a claim, this is a statement to Jesus' deity. Christ spoke what he was given by the Father. And then finally, number five, in this message of salvation, we see in verse 50, the commandment of God is everlasting life. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Once again, Jesus is saying, obey the command to repent and believe. Obey the command and be saved. Obey and enter into life everlasting. The commandments of God, the law of God, is not grievous. It points us to our sinfulness, but it also reveals our need for the Savior. The commandments of God are for our good, ultimately. I I get so tired of the negativity toward Christianity about rules and legalism and uh, about commands and, and, and all that. But the Christian life is the greatest life worth living. There is freedom in Christ, not to live however I want out of the perverted, lustful desires of my heart. No, but to live in the freedom that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the best life worth living. That is the most satisfying life. That is the fullness of life here on this earth, is the life lived in obedience to Christ. In the joy of the Lord, that should be our strength. And Jesus is saying the commandment of God is everlasting life. Obey the command to be saved, but also obey the commands of God in his word. He divinely designed this world. He created this world, and he designed it for us to have dominion, yes, and I know we are sinners. But if we do things God's way, if we obey God's word, and we obey his principles and his commands and follow his promises... God has promised blessing. God has promised reward. We need to do things God's way. It is the best way. The message of salvation. But then we go down to John chapter 13 in verse number 1. And we see the enduring love. The enduring love of Christ. John 13 and verse 1. Now... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Here they are preparing, having gone up into the upper room, preparing for the Passover meal, the last Passover meal that Jesus would observe with his disciples. From, from that Passover meal, we have what we have here in our church as one of our ordinances of the church. We have communion, the Lord's table. And it flows out of the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples that is sometimes referred to as the Last Supper. This is now the setting. 
I know the Synoptic Gospels give us additional details. We won't refer to all those today. We'll focus on this time, this moment where they have entered into the upper room, and here is Christ, and he is about to wash the disciples' feet. But notice how John creates the background, the setting, by the inspiration of God. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world, he knew it was that time. Later that night, they would be in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Judas would come with that band of soldiers, and they would arrest Jesus and take him to be crucified. Jesus has, in his humanity, he has a lot on his mind. He has a lot he wants to teach his disciples in this upper room. You ever been there as a parent or as a grandparent? Maybe as a teacher, maybe in some place of training. You have a lot that you want to cover. I feel like that a lot on Sunday mornings. There's a lot I want to cover. And if you would just stay around for a couple hours. <laughs> anyway, just kidding. But, you know, you, you feel like that sometimes as a father, as, as a parent. As a grandparent, or maybe in a classroom or in a training session, there's there's so much to cover. There's so much. And and sometimes the students, the the, the child, they don't realize the seriousness of it. This is is so important. There are lessons here that are so important that you, you may not realize right now, but I'm preparing you for life. I'm preparing you for the next stage in your life. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be the the mean old green-eyed ogre that you think I am. It's I love you and I want you to have the best life that God would have for you. So listen up. These are important truths. These are important lessons. And, And there's almost that sense as we get into John 13 that Jesus has his disciples together one last time. And there's going to be several chapters here where we see lesson after lesson. And Jesus will begin with a very practical lesson on humility. Isn't it interesting that they needed this lesson on humility? They're disciples. They've been with Christ for three years, three and a half years. Surely they have learned the lesson of humility by now. I've been around almost 48 years. And I still struggle with my pride. I still need a big, heaping dose of humble pie quite regularly. I don't always like how I get it. I don't always like how it tastes going down. But I need a good dose of humble pie on a regular basis. And Jesus comes to the upper room. And here we see John referencing Christ's hour has come. But notice before we see the practical display of his humility. We see the reference to Christ's love. He loved them in the world, having loved his own which were in the world. Interesting phrase. Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. In this sin-cursed world, in this sin-cursed state in which we are presently in, He loved us. Now we sit here, I I hope and pray, 100% of us, having trusted Christ as our personal Savior, 
repented of our sins, our faith and trust is in Christ. We are sinners saved by grace. But Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. We wouldn't be saved today if Christ did not love us. If he did not love us in the world, in our sinful state, we love him because he first loved us. We just studied how Christ, if he be lifted up, he draws all men unto himself. Christ is constantly drawing men to him for salvation. And he loves us. He loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. Unto the end literally means to perfection. In other words, Christ's love for believers is a perfect, saving, and eternal love. It is a perfecting love sometimes. It is a purging love sometimes. It is a perfect love. And it is forever. The love of God sometimes does mean consequences, chastening. But first and foremost, the love of God means salvation for all those who respond to the love of Christ and repentance and faith. Obey the command to repent. But in this love of God, we are secure. It holds us tight in the difficult times of life. And Jesus is about to send his disciples into a crucible of suffering that they had never experienced. And he loved them. And he was preparing them. And in his love, he was teaching them. And he would give a practical example of his humility and his love. And then he would demonstrate that love in going to the cross and dying on the cross for their sins as well as ours. He loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end to perfection. In other words, God's love for us is like Philippians 1 in verse number 6. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is constantly working to make us more like his son. We don't always like the squeezing and the purging and the pruning. We don't always like how the rubbing of the rough edges and the sharp edges. We don't always like that. We we just want the, the cotton candy Christianity. We just want the easy stuff. Lord, I'll I'll learn my lesson. Just give me the pillows. Give me the the nice lounge chair of Christianity with the potato chips and the 24-hour binge-watching whatever live, whatever streaming service you might have. Just give me that Christianity, Lord. That's the Christianity that I want that will really make me serve you. I I don't know. I've, I've only been saved 30... Nine years, 30, almost about 40 years, 41 years. And I've yet to find that place in the Christian life where I can kick it into neutral and I can sit back on the couch of Christianity and eat the potato chips and watch the streaming service of the Christian life. I haven't found that yet. As a matter of fact, every time I think that I can go there, God stirs me up, wakes me up, deals with me. Complacent Christianity, comfortable Christianity, is doing a great disservice to the church and to the world today. Jesus is preparing the disciples. He loves them even in his perfect, saving, eternal love to perfection. He is working 
in their lives to make them more like his son. Romans chapter 8, we can't help but talk about the love of God and, and not turn to Romans chapter 8. And we may have these verses memorized. Romans 8 and verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a powerful love. That is a sustaining love. And we know how powerful love is. Our world sings an idolatrous form of false love. Our world votes for a blasphemous, perverted form of false love. But our world desperately wants love. We are relational beings. We want love. But we must have love according to God's definition of love. We must have love that is founded in the love of God. And there are all kinds of people today, often celebrities, they fall in and out of love all the time. That's not the kind of fickle love that God has for us. The proofs of Christ's love continue. They continue throughout our lives and into heaven. And we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can rest assured in God's love. It's tough in bad home situations. I've watched kids with broken homes, where mom and dad spent the night before yelling and screaming at each other. And the kid comes in the next morning and they're just distraught. And the teacher has to kind of pick them up throughout the day. And I remember having to deal with kids who sit in my office. I look across my desk and I just see the pain. Because they have no love in their home. And my heart broke for them. What a joy to have the love of God and to live that out. And Jesus is preparing the disciples for a time of suffering, a time of persecution that they have never seen before. But he loved them. He loved them to the end and he loves us with that same love. And we can rest assured in that love of God no matter what your home life is like, no matter what kind of background you have, no matter what you're going through, we can look to the Lord and we can experience his enduring love that is perfecting us. Yes, it may hurt for a while. It may hurt sometimes, but it is an assuring. It is an embracing love that brings peace and brings joy and brings true satisfaction and fulfillment. And then we see in verse number two, we see a contrast here. I don't want to end on a negative note, but due to time, we'll probably have to end in verse number two before we can move on. But we see in verse number two, the contrast then in verse number two is, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
We, we know that Christ loved Judas. Judas rejected that love. We looked at Judas in a previous chapter in contrast with Mary, and Judas was stone-cold-hearted toward Christ. He was now preparing to go out and to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver, a slave's wage. We see the heart of the traitor. We go from the message of salvation and the enduring love of Christ to the heart of a traitor. John writes here that the devil entered Judas's heart. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So I'll adjust that a little bit, but it appears that, de- that a demon of some kind is ruling in Judas's life. I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of that. But the devil himself put into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. This is a demonic agenda. This is a demonic inspiration. I'm not saying that we need to get into some sort of demonology and try to study into the depths of the spirit world and try to figure out all the ins and outs. I think it's a very dangerous place for, for us to try to go. And some people, they, they get enamored with this demonology and they get way too involved in this spirit world. And, and, and I think that our world does, has a lot of dangers and, and romanticizes violence and spiritism and Satanism. And now it's even got to the point where satanic clubs are trying to move into schools and um, even setting up displays in, in state houses in different places around our nation. Why, why, are they, why are they feeling more bold and being willing to be more public and even get into schools? Because people are, are, are more enamored and, and they're being more tolerant of the, 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 the Satanism and the demonism. And, and people are not aware biblically like they should. So I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of how the devil inspired Judas or entered Judas. But we, we, we know that there's a demonic influence here. And he left the presence of Jesus possessed by a demon. Or under a demonic influence, at least. Having the, the devil himself putting into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. No one has ever been so close to Christ and yet so far away. Never has there been a traitor or a hypocrite quite to the level of Judas. So much so that I don't know if anybody has ever been named Judas again. Maybe there's somebody out there who goes by the name of Judas. But I wouldn't say that they were in a place of good reputation. If they were named Judas, it was probably because they either desired or were given that name due to a very demonic type reputation or evil reputation. His name has been marred for all ages. In a sense, Judas sold his soul to the devil. And now the devil came to get what he paid for. What a sobering reminder. You know, Judas would die a miserable death. He would go out, hang himself after turning back the 30 pieces of silver. He would die in guilt. 
go to an eternal hell, a place of damnation. And you know, again, we condemn Judas, and rightly so. A man like Judas is despicably evil. But he was a human who walked close to Christ, who was even called of Christ to be a disciple, who walked with Christ, and even the disciples, as we'll study in the upper room, were even asking, is it I? Is it I? They didn't even suspect Judas. He had played the part. He had been the hypocrite. And again, as I've said before, the definition of a hypocrite is all of us some of the time. And some people all the time. So what is the hypocrisy in our hearts today? What lie are we trying to live? What lie are we trying to get away with? Oh, we would compare ourselves to a Judas, and by the grace of God, none of us are a Judas or would even get close to that kind of hypocrisy. By the grace of God. But what a sobering reminder of the depths of the depravity to which man will go. And the hypocrisy that man will live in to try to have his own way and to gain his own reward and to do his own thing. And we see a a man like Judas, the epitome of a man who desired his own way. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. What kind of a legacy are we going to leave for our children? For our children's children. What kind of a testimony are we going to have for Christ? Is our hypocrisy afflicting our homes? Is our hypocrisy afflicting our workplace? Is our hypocrisy afflicting the places we go for recreation? And we booze it up? And we talk just like them? And we act just like them? But then now the other side of our mouth comes sweet water of Jesus in church. And I'm a good Christian. While the other side of the mouth is spewing forth bitter waters of lust and worldliness and ungodliness. We're reminded of the hypocrisy of Judas. And it teaches us a lesson that we must self-examine. We must keep short sin accounts with God. And we need to be willing to be open before our spouse and be open before our parents. And we need to be willing to speak the truth and live the truth and accept correction and be willing to humble ourselves when even it's hard to accept. Where even where we are 95% right, we can accept the 5% where the other person is right and swallow hard and say, God, thank you for teaching me. All kinds of ways in which we can apply this about Judas. Though by the grace of God, we are not a Judas. Is there a Judas-like spirit sometimes of hypocrisy in our lives that we must, by the grace of God, humbly come before the Lord daily? As Paul said, I die daily. Paul was so afflicted by his sinful condition as one of the greatest, if not the greatest Christian who ever lived. Paul, in his latter days, was still afflicted with his sinful condition as he got closer to God. He was more keenly aware of his sin. 
And it just seems so often that as believers, many times, we claim to be so close to God, and yet we seem to have such little regard for sin and worldliness and ungodliness. May we not have the attitude or the spirit of a Judas, even in the slightest in our lives. May we rest in the enduring love of Christ and be humbled once again at the message of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for the word of God that is the two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, we thank you for the enduring love of Christ, that you loved us before we, first, before we even loved you. You loved us first. You drew us unto yourself. Lord, if there's someone here who is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they are being drawn, and they know it. Lord, may they come to you in saving faith today and obey the command to repent and believe. Lord, I pray that us as believers, that we will not have one ounce of the hypocrisy of a Judas, that we'll not have one ounce of the pride that would afflict the disciples. Lord, I pray that we will be humble servants for you. Lord, I pray that you will do a work in our midst and do a work in our hearts and go out from this place to change people, loving you more and serving you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll turn in our hymnals. We'll turn in our hymnals for our closing invitation benediction hymn.